Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services, for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today we have with us Carrie Wooten. She shares a similar background to Zach and I. She was a police officer for seven years. And then when she left that, she started the Mindset Enterprise, where she focuses on leadership, performance mindset, and culture. Uh, last year, she was the Dean of the National Command and Staff College, which is a um, program that kind of majors and above in the police world will go and sit through to gain more police knowledge. She has three kids. She's been married for seven years and she's also a self-defense instructor. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So let's kind of go back into a little bit of your childhood. What was it like growing up? What was high school like for you? Sure. So I'm a military brat and I was, my only constant was really being the new kid. Yeah. So I moved, you know, every year, every two years, pretty much like that. You know, it was awesome. I have three brothers. We're all super close because we had to lean on each other. But I was definitely raised in this, like, nothing but excellence kind of family where you will succeed because that's the expectation. So like pros and cons to it. But I definitely had that like early drive, intrinsic motivation instilled in me, which of course, you know, helped me in adulthood. Definitely. So when you were um, a little kid, did you always know that you wanted to go into policing? Was it something that it was like your passion, your driver? Was it kind of just like, oh, that looks fun. <laughs> I'll try that. <laughs> um, so uh, no, definitely not what I wanted to do growing up. I swore from when I was like five years old, that I was going to be the first like female blue angels. This is back before there were any. Um, be a fighter pilot, go Naval Academy like my dad did, all that good stuff. He's a little heartbroken when I didn't. And uh, I didn't decide until junior year of college. So I was majoring in psychology. I picked up minors in criminal justice, did a lot of the um, forensic psych, abnormal psych kind of stuff. And I was like, this is really cool, but I don't want to sit in a research lab because I'm just not that person. I had a lot of offers to do it. It sounded terrible to me. So I was like, how can I merge the two? Decided to go law enforcement route and got to see how I could still use my schooling in law enforcement, right? Especially with CIT programs. Like they were like, yep, already at recruit, you're gonna be our go-to CIT. This is the path you're gonna take. So I still got to merge the two and it was really the perfect fit. You know, I, I loved it. I made the right choice straight out of college for sure. That's awesome. That's what I did not ever think that I was gonna be a police officer. And I came home my junior year, told my dad <laughs> and he was like, really? That's what? <laughs> my dad was a math major. He was not a he was not in the in the military, so it's definitely like a weird path for me to take. He's like, "Are you sure?" I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "All right, let's do Whatever. it." Whatever makes <laughs> yeah. me happy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's awesome. So I've kind of talked about it a little bit on the show and like in our first episode of why the nonprofit was started, um, and a lot of it came from my time as a police officer. Mm -hmm. So what was it like for you answering those domestic violence calls? You know, I think it's like a lot of law enforcement where you don't really think about it because it's always happening. 
Like, I feel like you go to the first one and you're like, oh, this is real. This really happens in people's houses. You know, I didn't grow up with it. Like, my parents are good. They've been married 36 years. I mean, things are fine, right? So it's not something I was familiar with until law enforcement. But I feel like very quickly you go from, whoa, this is real life to another call, another call. You know, I was in a busy city, in the busiest precinct. Like, it was, that's just the way it was. And it wasn't abnormal to get the call of, hey, there's another domestic and, you know, there's a weapon involved and there's kids involved, you know, and, and, and. So I feel like you shift from that emotional support to tactical, right? How do we work this call and then work about, you know, worry about resources and emotional support later, um, which I don't think is wrong, right? Safety first, you've got to do that. But it does desensitize you to the whole situation for sure. <laughs> Definitely. What kind of, were you seeing like the same families over and over again or, you know, or was it always different calls and different people? I feel like both. You would see the same ones over and over. And those were the ones where, you know, of course it was state mandated arrest. And then now you're the enemy because whoever the victim is is saying, no, I love them. Don't arrest them. I'm like, they, you called us and you're getting, you know, 82 stitches in your face right now. You know, they need to go. So you'd get the same ones, but I also feel like it was a new family every day too. Yeah. So I, I mean, both to answer your question, <laughs> right? And I felt like it was just exponential. There were always more. How did that wear on you as a police officer or just as a female in general? I don't know if it wore on me as a police officer, probably not as much as it should have. Because for me, they weren't the hardest cases, maybe because they were the norm. But of course, then when you did get to the ones that maybe turned into critical incidents or homicides, and you had been to that house so many times, I feel like that's when it's heartbreaking. You know, we did everything we could to help and had protective orders. Like we did all the legal steps and it still didn't work. Those ones would definitely hit home because I felt responsible for those ones. Obviously knowing I wasn't responsible, right? I mean, it wasn't my fault. But you just, you kind of wish that you can save everybody and you have right. to know that you can't. So I feel like that's heartbreaking. And as a woman, I feel like it was just more frustrating when I couldn't understand, even though I knew like psychologically what was going on, um, you know, battered women, you know, women's syndrome, all the other things. Like, what do you mean you love him? This is the fifth time I've been to your house in five days. Right. You know, like how, what do you need from us? How do we give you confidence? How do we give you strength to, you know, not just call us, but go to court and make this, you know, a lasting, you know, scenario, get away from this guy. And I feel like that's where, as a woman, it really got to me because I, I didn't know how to help. Definitely. Did you ever have anybody tell you why they weren't leaving? Like what were specific reasons or was it just kind of the overall battered women's syndrome? I feel like 90% of the time it was battered women and then a couple of times it was money. It was actually the, the outliers. It was the very affluent families, which I didn't work a lot of those. That's not the area I work in. Uh, my area was pretty much housing projects and trailer parks. But the few times I got to go into the other parts <laughs> of the city and got the 30 year difference in marriage and the, you know, millionaire or whatever, um, that was the, I can't go. He has everything. He gives me everything. I have no money. I'm not allowed to work. And they've really felt stuck. But they had even more of that facade to put out because they were a 
successful couple, more or less. But that, that was the outlier in my experience. Definitely. And I'm so glad that you brought that situation up because a lot of people think that domestic violence only affects lower socioeconomic mm-hmm. uh, groups of people, but it, it's, it affects everybody. It doesn't matter what race you are, what gender you right. are, what your sexual orientation is, how much money you have. Mm-hmm. Like everybody experiences domestic violence. Yeah. Or yeah. Because I, I mean, every group. Yeah. Because I'm sure you've seen it the same. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah, there's some areas that had more, but I don't think it had anything to do with the class, they were just higher population density areas. Right, Right, exactly. (laughs) Yes. So you left policing about three years ago, right? Mm -hmm. What was your reason for leaving? What kind of drove you out? Yeah. So my first agency I worked for in Virginia Beach, I loved. It was the agency that I chose. It was the one that I applied to while I was a senior in college. And it was the only one I applied to. So I'm glad they hired me. (laughs) I did not have a plan B, but it's what I wanted. I went after it. And uh, I loved it. So, you know, big department, you could do a lot of different things very quickly. It was awesome. Then my husband is a Marine. So, of course, we got orders to North Carolina. And I went to an agency that I didn't necessarily want. But it's the area we got orders to and they were hiring. So, you know, you make the most out of it. And I got the job. That's when I really got to see what the other side looks like. And see that grass is not greener, regardless of, there's, you know, there's complainers in every agency, right? But it was that agency that's, it had all of the issues that you see on the news, right? It had ethical issues. There were corruption issues. They lacked knowledge and experience and exposure, which I think was the biggest issue. So, it, it, but it was so bad. I tolerated two years and literally I came home one day. I was miserable every day every single day and I had kids at home so I'm like I'm not even home with my kids I don't get to see them with you know how shifts work and everything else I see them every fourth day and for what like I'm not doing anything I'm not fulfilled I'm not helping my community all these things and my husband says you're not fun to be married to anymore and it hit me hard and that was the eye-opener of I thought I was keeping it separate but the cancer of toxic leadership at work had infected my personal life. So now how was I? Yeah. So it's very real. And I feel like if you don't experience it, you pretend that it doesn't happen. Everyone's like, oh, I don't take work home. I don't take work home. I I thought I was very aware of what I was doing and it was still coming home to me. I was like, well, that's not going to work. You know, there's no benefit here. Why am I, why am I staying? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like a literally word for word, Zach said the same thing to me after he got out and we were doing that, he's like, you are not fun to be around anymore. And it sucks. It, it, it does suck. It sucks so much. You're like, wait, I'm the problem. No, you're the problem. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not me. I'm doing what I'm supposed right. to do. Yeah. And I, I'm working hard. I'm, I'm there early. I'm staying late. I'm mm-hmm. making time for my family. And it didn't matter. He was right. like, cause you're grouchy. And like, <laughs> yes. Like, I don't care if you're here. You're not fun when you are here. Right. So exactly. that's, that, that was definitely my eye-opener, and I decided to leave. So then Mindset Enterprise, was that like in the works already, or was it kind of like, all right, now I got to find something to do? <laughs> no, this is kind of my turning my curse into a blessing situation. And uh, I took some time, and I said, well, if the culture was that bad for me, and someone who 
I think is highly aware. I do all the self-reflection. I mean, I do all the things I'm supposed to, right? If it can happen to me, I know it's happening to so many other people out there. And that was the, what can I create to be a solution and prevent this from happening in other agencies? Like what training can I provide? And I started to really break it down and analyze my situation, how I responded, what my agency was doing, what I did right, what I did wrong. I mean, I really took time to break it down and then created Mindset Enterprise for this. This needs to stop. You're losing, you know, losing good people in a profession that doesn't have a waiting line for recruiting right now. <laughs> so that, that was really, yeah, I took my curse and turned it into a blessing. So your mindset is, or your mindset coaching is focused on higher level individuals in the police department or all around? So I do both. I do a lot of command and staff. Some of that's with the college because I do the same training, mm -hmm. uh, same content with the, with the command college and then in my company. Of course, my expertise is one and the same regardless of, you know, who I'm training for. So I do it there and I kind of teach them how do you build the culture. You guys say culture, but what does it even mean? And most times agencies can't define it. Like they're throwing it around, throwing it around as a buzzword, but they have no idea what they're talking about. So then I get to take that proactive approach of here's what you need. Here's who's in your agency. How do we build? And then I get to take that concept of leadership has no rank and do it from all levels. So a training I did a few weeks ago, the highest, we had a couple of sergeants in the class, but other than that, it was, you know, rank, um, different assignments, but rank guys a lot from like four to about 10 years on. So they knew what they were doing. They were informal leaders. And it was the, how do you become a change agent in culture? And how do you have a performance mindset to be better? Have you seen that you have more success with the lower ranking individuals than the high ranking individuals or other way around? I see more resistance at the higher level. Um, not all the time, you know, some are very in tune and very progressive and what can I do for my guys? But then of course at the higher level, I will get that. I've been doing this for 30 years. We've never had to do it this way. And we have to have that hard conversation of policing has changed. The generation you're recruiting has changed. And this is the hand that you've been dealt. You know, now we have to move forward. <laughs> Here's how we make it better. Yeah. Have you found, have you seen that like you may have more connection with the officers and the sergeants, but change doesn't really happen because they're kind of scared to put it in place because... I yes, I have seen that. And we have the conversation of, well, we want change, but it's the guys at the top. They won't support or they won't sign off. They're the ones in charge. And then we just shift the conversation where I say, you also can't rely as an organization on the handful of guys at the top because it's not their responsibility. Yes, they need to take ownership, they need to lead, but they cannot carry the weight of 50, 100, you know, 1,000 people on their shoulders either. So it's kind of this culture is a responsibility of everybody involved. And if you're not being a positive change agent, then you are now being the, the cancer in the culture. So it's really teaching that ownership at all levels because, I mean, that's how you get lasting change. Right, exactly. And, and that's kind of like what I saw at our department was the younger guys, we were all, you know, this is what needs to happen to change. This is, you know, there's always that conversation, but nothing ever happened because mm -hmm. the higher ups were not on board, even yeah. though kind of acted like it, you know, they'd ask our opinion and be like, Hey, what can we do to change this? How can we reach the younger generations? And we'd be like, do this, 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 and this. And then 
nothing ever. And nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working yeah. on training, on training both and like merging the, <laughs> yes. mer merging the two and kind of closing the gap. Definitely. That's, which is awesome because I think it's so needed. And like you said, why you left and it's exactly why I left is just that culture is not changing as quickly as everything else around it. Mm -hmm. and, it and it becomes detrimental to people's mental health who work yeah. there. And if you can't be your best self at work, then you can't be your best self for the people that you need to serve. Right. Exactly. And that's, that's definitely the perspective that I train from as well. Where they say, well, you know, what, why do we need this? I said, your whole goal is serving your community. If you've got a bunch of broken, toxic people, you know, that's where your citizen complaints are coming from. That's where your risk and liability goes up because you've got the, you know, toxic, grouchy cop that's yelling at the citizen that has nothing to do with what's going on right now. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's all the internal stuff that's going on, you know, back at, back at the station, back at the precincts. And then you tie that back into say going on a domestic violence call and you're screaming mm -hmm. at a victim who just got right. screamed at by their significant other. And it's, yep. you know, then they become less apt to call the police because all they are going to do is get yelled at again by right. a man right. usually because exactly. they dominate the field. But you know, so it, so when you tie it back into calls like that and critical calls like that, it's it is just a cycle of although police are trying to help domestic violence victims, if you don't have that culture in place, you're actually hurting those victims right. as well. Yeah, we're well. I'm glad we put community policing into effect, but we're kind of self sabotaging it. Right. But if we're not better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. We're on this mindset track and talking about mindset. What do you use to kind of shift those, the mindsets? Because I think that it doesn't matter whether you're changing a culture or whether you're ready to leave an abuser or trying to leave an abuser or mm -hmm. whether you want to start a business. It's all that same mindset shift yep. that you have to do and you do the same steps to do that. So kind of without giving away your whole business. Yeah, no, it's good. It's but good. Um, what are some ways that you go about doing that? Yeah, so a lot of it is personal development first. You know, everyone focuses on professional development, which only takes you so far. People focus on what's the job, what's my exit strategy, but they very rarely look inward. And a lot of that is because we don't want to take ownership, because we probably know the truth about ourselves, but don't want to admit it. Because, I mean, none of us want to look inward and say, oh, that was probably my fault, <laughs> right? I could have been better. I screwed up there. How did I respond? Um, so a lot of it is that training of self-awareness and mastering self-reflection. And once you get to know yourself, the, the good, the bad, the challenges, right? All the in-between, kind of this whole embracing our flaws and weaknesses thing. How do we implement and move forward? And then I go a lot into the psychological and physiological and that's why I shift into well-being and mental health and we talk about gratitude practice and what it does for your self-worth and what it does to your mindset and your circle of influence you know who is immediately around you and that's a difficult conversation because everyone says well my family well I love my family too we're very close they have very little influence over me because they don't share my vision of where I'm going personally and professionally you know, I love them. We talk all the time. Okay, we're close, but the weight they carry as far as how I make my decisions is slim to none. Right. You know, and, and they're, they're happy, they're successful. Like, I have a great family. You know, I don't have this, you know, tragic, you know, story from, you know, rough childhood to success kind of thing. 
but it's, that's a hard conversation too, of who's really around you, you know, at home and at work. And if they're not good for you, then they don't carry weight. Right. And that's, that's a huge stepping stone for a lot of people. And that's like the very basic foundation building, but then we go from there and your mindset will change as you create this self-worth and a personal mission. And why are you getting up every morning and kind of the big picture for you? That's where we start to see the shift. Definitely. And you know, we're huge believers in, you know, the people that you have, the five people that you surround yourself the most with mm-hmm. is your, the version of yourself, but that doesn't mean you only have to have five friends. You right. Exactly. Just, they don't, the other people just don't carry weight in the decisions that you make. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's all about personal growth, before, like not before professional growth, but over professional growth. You know, you yeah. can, you can always make yourself better at work. You can go get your MBA, you can go get all these certifications, but if you're not making yourself better, then those certifications don't really carry in Right. Well, and that's not where most of us struggle. I mean, at work, most people know what skills they need and they either already have them or they're taught. You know, law enforcement, people aren't struggling because they don't know how to drive, shoot, and handcuff. Right. Right? Like, that's not really the problem. The problem is their mental health or their character that should have been looked at probably before they were hired. How have they changed from enthusiastic rookie years to 12 years on, or they had toxic FTOs? You know, I really focus on FTOs and how they are the key ingredient to a successful organization. Yes. Right? They're really that liaison, and they set the tone for what happens next. And a lot of them don't take ownership of that. Like you guys are in such a position of power. You have no idea. You need to own it and really make the best of it. Um, But we do, we do all this professional, the skills training, which of course is important, but it's not where we're falling short. It's not where most professions fall short. So if you don't have the skills or you can't pass training, you don't keep your job, but we'll keep people who are negative and toxic and can't lead and have, you know, issues at home. We'll keep those people. And those are kind of the ticking time bombs for whatever is happening professionally. Yes. And even I was only in for four years, but you saw, I've seen a couple of those bombs go off and it was Mm -hmm. not pretty. It was like, (laughs) yeah, I'm going that direction. (laughs) I don't know what's happening over here, but (laughs) I'll be over there (laughs) because it's just, and it's, it's funny and we laugh about it, but at the same time, it's like, oh my gosh, how did we not see this? Or we did. And we just kind of were like, it's, that's who, that's who he is. It's fine. Right. The crotchety, right. crotchety old man. That's, you know, let him do his thing. And it was just, right. Right. Okay. <laughs> and you're, you're right. We do. We miss it. And people say, how did I miss it? And then we look, I'm like, Oh, <laughs> there were obvious signs every day of the week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then you see those people after they get out and they're the happiest human beings on the planet. You're yeah. like, what happened? Yeah, but it's exactly. that, it's that shift. It's no longer being in that culture and being, you know, forced to act a certain way or be a certain way and then not getting the help when you're asking for it. So then you feel like you, it doesn't matter what you do because nobody's going to help you anyways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you don't have to be so tough when you leave. You get, you get to get rid of all that stigma of, I have to be tough. I have to be emotionally disconnected. And I mean, it was brought to my attention. Everyone's like, you're emotionally disconnected. I'm like, I love people. What are you talking about? They go, we can't see it. It's like, I was trained to do that. 
Right. I was trained. I mean, it's, it's part of the process. I think it happens to everybody. It's important. You need to have it, right? That's how you survive and get through your day. But being able to turn it off, I think, is right. a challenge. Exactly. You know, being able to open up at home is a challenge. Exactly. There's a difference between disconnecting and compartmentalizing. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I feel like it's kind of the same thing with, um, with domestic violence victims. Like you have, you know, you get to that point where it's just like, okay, this is my life. So it is what it is. And mm-hmm. um, I've learned how to deal with it and I've become desensitized to it almost. And they're, they're okay with what's happening to them because it's, it's daily life. It doesn't, it doesn't matter right. anymore. Yeah. Or they don't know any different. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of that you don't know what you don't know. You know, my husband came from a, you know, raised by a teenage single mom, really rough area, not a lot of affection, things like that. We were raised very different, where he was actually uncomfortable with affection from my family. He got, I mean, he got over it, Yeah. but he was like, you guys hug every time you see each other. He goes, and it, it's weird. I've never seen it. I didn't know families did that. And he, I mean, literally had to learn like, yeah. how to have relationships and show affection. And he's had to learn with each kid Yeah. as, as we've grown and everything else. Yeah. So. And it's so crazy how, like, and it's not like he doesn't know love. It right. just like wasn't. And that's like with Zach's family, like every time they hang up the phone, they're like, all right, love you. Bye. We never said yep. that in my family, but, you know, I, but i never felt unloved, but it was just something right. he never did. And then like, right. now I'm like, his, his grandmother's like, okay, love you. Bye. And I'm like, love you. Bye. Like, it's so weird for me to say <laughs> it still, you know, but it's like, there's still love there, but yeah, it's it's crazy how different. Yeah, it's a shift. Have, yeah, you know, have an influence like that. So before we started recording, we talked about a little bit that you were a self and self defense instructor. What qualifications did you? You said you guys owned a martial arts studio. So I didn't own it, but I was a head instructor for five years, I think, four or five years. And then I mean, this is way back. I mean, you know, teenage, you know, early college kind of stuff. But so I I went through Taekwondo, got a black belt there, switched over to American Karate, which has a lot of Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu and Aikido involved. Went ahead and got my first degree black belt there. Um, did some, kind of like some cross MMA stuff. But as I was writing curriculum and teaching that, of course it transferred into law enforcement really easily. And then the more you learn, you know, DT and stuff through law enforcement. But I was never a self-defense instructor professionally. I got to do it either at women's seminars where people were just, hey, you have this background. I mean, just I don't know what to call them. I mean, like random women, right? From like business networking groups or neighborhoods or whatever. Um, You know, how do we observe things? If someone tries to, you know, carjack us at the mall during holidays, what do we do? Kind of those basics. Some of it carried into domestic violence situations. And then I did a lot with transition programs for sex trafficking victims, which was really cool because a lot of it was confidence building. um, And I would bring a partner he was, I mean, he was a Marine and he was MP and he was like six, six. I mean, this huge guy and I would literally bring him just so they could defend. So they could see that proof of this is, I mean, a large man, there are only so many bigger and they could still see how it worked. And you would just see that confidence, you know, build and build. And it was, you know, these women who knew nothing other than whoever their traffickers were, um, and they had been nothing but controlled, they got to see their own power and see techniques and really see that shift, which was awesome. That is amazing. That's exactly what we see in our programs through the nonprofit mm-hmm. is that they, you know, they start out as little caterpillars and cocoons and right. <laughs> blossom into butterflies and it's awesome. And they're able to build that confidence and, and reach 
such new potentials and it's awesome to watch. What are some of the things that you do that you teach in the mindset portion? Are they similar to what you're teaching now or do you kind of have a tweaked a little bit for some of um, it, It's still pretty similar. Um, a lot more is that seeking self-worth kind of situation and it's a what do you want like no one gets to tell you what you want no one gets to tell you what you're supposed to be you know some of it's really elementary like kind of the stuff that we were probably all told as little kids but forgot for whatever reason because then we started to fail and struggle through school and through first jobs where we started believing these you know lies about ourselves but I get to go back to the you know without sounding too cheesy you can do whatever you want you just need to set goals to get there and have systems and yeah there are things that you need right for whatever your goal is but here are the resources so really it's just opening that door to what do you want now how do you get there and here are the resources you know and you need your five people and you know those other things start to come into play but it's that teaching people how to take steps I mean, how to take the first step. <laughs> right, exactly. Definitely. So you mentioned failure. And so I want to ask, how do you view failure overall, especially teaching mindset? And mm -hmm. Failure is this thing that we all fear for whatever reason. But what I've learned really from students of mine having this discussion is no one fears failure, but they fear the perception that people have of them when they fail. Because if I say, why do you fear failure? I'd say, well, people will judge me or people will think I'm not competent or people I said, so none of that's the failure. That's all what others think. Well, everyone's failed, you know, raise your hand, everybody. Everyone's had successes, raise your hand, everybody. So what we've now learned is that it's part of being human and we just accept it. And you create this growth mindset of if I failed, it means that I tried something outside my limits, which is awesome. I pushed myself and now, okay, why did I fail? Now let me go try again and adjust. Yes. And you just, you just learn to grow from it. And I feel like it sounds simple in conversation. I mean, it's a very hard thing to do. Right. It's, I mean, and it's painful and no one really wants to do it. <laughs> right. I mean, it doesn't matter how many times you've done it. It still kind of sucks when you fail. But if you accept that it's going to happen, I feel like that starts to take that fear away. Definitely. And you, I, you I think the power from it. Yeah. And I think it's so key to start teaching women now, but also teach young girls that it's okay to quit. It's okay to fail. It's, you know, I think even quitting is viewed mm -hmm. as bad, but right. it's like, but it's no, it's like you're realizing when something's not working, you're not just quitting because you don't want to, like, you just want to give up. You don't really care about it anymore. Mm -hmm. You're still giving your best. You're still doing everything that you should but it's noticing and figuring out when something's not working. And right. I think that is a lot of why people stay in toxic relationships is because they're like, mm -hmm. I'm not giving up. I'm not quitting. You know, I can either change this person or change myself to be better, do this and all of this, but it's like, you can't, you can't change them and yeah. you can't change what's going on. And, but we've taught everybody that it's not okay to fail. It's not okay to quit. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's looked down upon, it's frowned upon, and it it is. It's some things just aren't meant to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. You you go down a certain path, and that's great. You went down it. You tried it. You gave it your all. Okay. Now it's whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job. It's hey, it's not for you, 
Right. So we leave this one and what did we learn from it? And we go find something else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So wrapping up, we've got a few questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first one is what would the new you say to the old you? Oh, that's a good question. Ooh, I wasn't ready. I think that really taking my own advice that going into the unknown, going into living in uncertainty, but intentionally so, if that makes sense, is powerful and it's a good thing. And I've become really efficient at the, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. That's okay. I'll commit to it and I'll figure it out as I go. Um, I've embraced that when opportunities come, I just say yes and figure it out. And it's worked, I mean, nine out of 10 times. And uh, but I feel like learning to embrace that. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to feel comfortable. I don't have to feel competent. I'll figure out what I don't know and learn it and apply it and make it work. So it's, it's really taking my own advice that I have now. <laughs> Definitely. That's awesome. What is a piece of advice that you would give a woman who is going through a traumatic time? Traumatic in any sense of the word? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is take the time, give yourself grace. And I mean, own it. Look at what you're doing in this situation, but you don't need to take full responsibility for other people involved either. Kind of like you said, we can't change people. And there are plenty of us who have gone into a situation of, this will be a challenge. Let me change someone. Let me fix it. It's not your job to fix everything. And I think women love to be fixers. Yes. Right? I mean, there's, there's pros there for sure because we're pretty decent at it. But it's not our responsibility to go fix every problem, to change everybody. Um, and that trauma happens and it's okay. Like whatever happened isn't okay, but it's okay that you've experienced it and there's no stigma associated with it. I think that's the biggest challenge is no one wants to put it out there because of that fear of being judged, that fear of how people respond. Most of the time you're getting support, yeah. but we have this crazy idea that will be looked down upon instead. So it's really, you've got trauma. Okay. It's happened. What are the next steps? You know, where do you need the support and don't fear what others are going to think because whatever idea you've cooked up probably isn't accurate. Right. Exactly. We have that, we have that, uh, tendency to, to just, mm -hmm. yeah, to just think what if, what if, what if, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, what is a book podcast ebook, something that you love and that kind of puts you in a good mood and helps mm -hmm. you get through things? I have a lot of them. I have done read Miracle Morning a number of times. Um, it's something that I use, but it definitely helps me refocus and take control of my day, which if you can control your day, you can control your weeks, your months, your years, right? Um, so Miracle Morning is awesome. And a quick read, I really like Visions to the Top. Visions to the Top is a super short, it's probably like 70 pages or something which is great, but it's very basic on here's how you focus on whatever you want and here's how you have unlimiting beliefs. So you can apply it wherever you need to <laughs> with whatever's going on in your life right now. That's awesome. And then finally, where can people hear more from you or about you? Yeah, so my website is mindsetenterprise.net. I can always be contacted there. It goes straight to my email. And then I am real Carrie Wooten on all social media handles and then Carrie Wooten on LinkedIn. And I'm, I'm on all of them. <laughs> awesome. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, thriving, A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.